0: Good morning. <clears throat> Can you guys uh, hear me okay? Right on. Well, uh, <laughs> this has been a thrilling morning, at least for at least for myself. Um, yeah, so much that could be said, but uh, for the sake of time, if if you do have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn with me to the Book of Psalms book of psalm chapter 51 is where we're going to spend most of our time i believe this morning psalm chapter 51 and uh before before i start reading i'm just uh going to uh pray again if you don't mind Again, Psalm chapter 51. Father, again, uh, just in the name of the Lord Jesus, we come. And uh, it's not just that I would come, but that we would come collectively before you, taking you up on your offer to approach boldly to the throne of grace for help in time of need. Um, yeah, we uh, we recognize, um, or at least I'm sure most of us recognize uh, unless you speak this morning, um, that all of this will just be a religious circus. All of this will just be, a, well, just simply a waste of time. And so, Lord, um, yeah, I, I don't want to like the sound of my voice, and I don't think anyone here wants to listen to a talking head. Um, Father, you said if anyone speaks, let them speak as the oracles of God. You're the one that's intimately acquainted with each need represented this morning, um, we read that you know our hearts, you're greater than our hearts, and you know all things. And so, Lord, we uh, we want to set aside the appearances, the optics, uh, what appears to be, and uh, we just want to get sincerely honest in your presence and hear what your spirit has to say to the churches. And so, Lord, um, yeah, just wanting to cast a vote of no confidence in my own flesh, I, I just know that um, I will go on rabbit trails, I will... Just uh, burn up the clock unnecessarily. We're asking, Lord, for you to speak clearly, to be with my mouth, to teach me what to say, and to uh, bless and encourage your people. Uh, Even as we've witnessed this amazing testimony of your grace, uh, the fact that your gospel is your power unto salvation, that you're still in the business of making individuals, new creatures, new creations in Christ, Um, Lord, we just ask that you would keep going, that you'd keep doing this. You would keep doing what you're really good at. As we read, you are mighty to save. And so, Lord, asking not for information this morning, but for transformation. Asking, Lord, that uh, our minds would not merely be engaged in our attention, but also our hearts and our consciences. Uh, So we commit ourselves to you in this time, and we do so in the name of the Lord Jesus, the only hero in this story. Amen. Psalm chapter 51. And I I guess I'll just say from the outset, if you're anything like me, anytime a lengthy passage of scripture is read, you probably have the tendency to tune out. (laughs) And I guess my encouragement to you would be, please don't. (laughs) Please don't. Um We read in the New Testament on more than one occasion the value of the public reading of the Scripture. Paul would say to Timothy to give attention to reading. We read in the book of Colossians that that letter that Paul wrote for the church in Colossae was to also be read in the hearing of the church in Laodicea, not too far away. Um, In the Old Testament, examples of the Scriptures being publicly read And it's actually worth studying the responses that you see. In some cases, they read, uh, excuse me, they stood for the reading of God's word. And in some cases, they wept when they heard what God had required of his people, Israel. And when they recognized, they fell terribly short. One example comes to mind, King Josiah, who after hearing the law of God read, tore his clothes. And so... um, historically the reading of the scripture has been regarded as a solemn thing it's been regarded as something not to be trifled with and that's just just my encouragement to you as we read this passage psalm chapter 51 and this is a psalm of david and he writes have mercy upon me O god according to your loving kindness according to the multitude of your tender mercies Blot out my transgressions. <laughs> Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you might be justified when you speak, and that you might be blameless when you judge. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right or steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with your free spirit. Then... Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And I will, or my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you don't desire sacrifice, else I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. O God, these you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bulls upon your altar. And we trust that the Lord will bless the public reading of the scripture. Now, I guess just from the outset, I'd like to draw your attention to the scandal in the preamble. Some of your Bibles will put a title over this passage and call it a prayer of repentance. And it'll say something like, to the chief musician. In other words, this psalm is addressed to the chief musician. It's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And so obviously there is a, a huge, a colossal context here that uh, demands perhaps a little bit of explanation. Many of us are likely familiar of the account from 1 Samuel chapter 11 where David, well just to put it very simply, fell into sin. He got into a lot of trouble. And it was a sin so grievous that it was not only a dishonor to himself. It was a dishonor to a woman by the name of Bathsheba. It was a dishonor to a man by the name of Uriah who ended up dying. And the blood of Uriah was on David's head. He had him killed. And it was a dishonor to a child that came as a result of the illicit relationship between David and Bathsheba. A child that had ended up dying. And it was a shame and dishonor upon the heritage of, Na- of Israel itself. This was supposed to be God's chosen people, God's heritage. And the prophet would tell David after exposing his sin that you've given great occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. In other words, they would hear the report of what David had done and say, this is the king of Israel? This is the man after God's own heart? And so we can say very, uh, very succinctly that great was the fall of David. And what's interesting to note here is the man that's penning these words, this was the sweet psalmist of Israel. This was the one who had been anointed by the God of the universe, had been exalted from the sheepfold, tending, uh, having been entrusted with the responsibility of a few sheep, This same shepherd boy, ruddy and good-looking, as the scripture says, had been exalted to the throne of Israel. And in some some ways, historians would suggest that he brought in something of a golden age to the nation of Israel. Even to this day, if you were to look at the flag of the nation of Israel, you'd see a star that's described as the star of David. And so this is one of the great patriarchs. We read the exploits of David. There's many of them listed in the Chronicles of the Kings as well as in Second Samuel, but one that I'm sure most of us have heard of is David and Goliath and the amazing victory that God had wrought at David's hands. And yet we see that there is a greater giant here, a greater giant than Goliath, You could call it lust, you could call it strong desire, you could call it bodily passions, whatever you want to call it. At the end of the day, can I suggest to you that the greater giant than Goliath was David himself. That he proved to be his own worst enemy. And so I just like that this isn't really the main point of what I wanted to share this morning. But I feel that this serves as a reminder and a warning, a stern warning to all of us. If I were to ask you, who is the godliest man in the Bible outside of the Lord Jesus, who would you say? And uh, I, I guess I'm not as interactive as Brother Nathan. I'm just going to answer my own questions here, if that's okay. <laughs> but uh, can I suggest to you it would be David, the man that God himself describes as the man after his own heart. Who is the strongest man in the Bible? And of course, Samson, we would say. God had given him supernatural might. Who was the the wisest man in the Bible outside of the Lord Jesus himself? And of course we would say Solomon. The strongest man, the wisest man, the godliest man. And yet all three had a common thread, didn't they? A common denominator in their lives. They all had trouble with the ladies, didn't they? And so we see that I mean, even Solomon would say, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. I think of Samson, who saw this Philistine woman, this, this daughter of Timnah, and, and she lo- he looked up and saw her and told his dad, go and get her for me, for she pleases me well. Just purely driven by his passion. And even in the account of David that we read of in 1 Samuel chapter 11, we see that David is looking when he shouldn't be looking. And that look uh, in a sense, ties his hands, if not his heart, draws him in, he makes inquiry, you see this downward spiral, he saw, he ends up taking, or I guess I, could, I should say he's lusting, and then he takes for himself, and he crosses a line, and can I suggest to you that the damage that was done as a result, and some of it, was irreversible, and he would pay the price for it, or at least suffer the consequences for the rest of his life now all that to say i guess all i would if i could just summarize from the very outset if any man te- or any woman t- thinks he or she stands take heed lest he fall i really believe there is a solemn warning for us here but beyond this when i read the psalm as we've heard it read in our hearing Can I suggest to you that this isn't merely written with ink, but ink mixed with tears? That this is the heartfelt expression of a man whose conscience is literally on fire. This is someone who's really feeling it. He recognizes, I've done wrong. Um, Someone who would once say things like, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in in my mouth. Is now saying, have mercy, have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly, he would say, cleanse me from my sin. This, can I just put it very simply, David feels dirty. He feels unclean. He has an unmistakable sense of his own guilt. And note here how many times the word my is used. My transgressions, wash me thoroughly, my iniquity, my sin, my transgressions over and over against thee and you, you alone have I sinned. This isn't someone who's playing the victim card. And this is very important. This is someone who is taking responsibility for his own personal sin. Now, in all of our lives, I think we can say, probably accurately, that we have suffered on account of the choices of others. We have, as a, in a sense, suffered on account of other people's sins, and there's a real sense in which we have been victims, and I don't want to under, undermine that in any way. Some of us still bear scars from the way we've been treated in one form or another, and I do not want to just dismiss that. But at the end of the day, we have to come to a place, all of us as individuals, where we're coming clean with God and saying, it's not my brother. It's not my father. It's not my sister. It's not my teacher. It's not the policeman. It's not the lawyer. It's me. It's me, O oh Lord. I have sinned. I have committed iniquity. I need to be made clean. The need for personal responsibility I guess the question I would ask is this is obviously the the words of a man who has known the favorable presence of God someone that has enjoyed the Lord has had experience with the living God and has now something of a that connection that relationship has now been fractured it's been marred He describes it as something of a broken bone. God has broken a bone. This person does not have a physical bone broken in their body. Can I suggest to you they're expressing the the sense of, of, of of a fractured relationship, distance with the living God whom which he once enjoyed. Is this a description of you this morning? I know in the New Testament the Lord Jesus would upbraid a church that was very active. The church at Ephesus, you could say they had a full church bulletin. Their every day of the week was filled with all manner of spiritual activity and yet the Lord Jesus had an indictment against them. They had left their first love. You could say in the language of Jeremiah, the prophet of old, they had left the love of their first espousals, that, that freshness, that reality they would once felt, that unmistakable sense that God was near and dear, that they were known by the living God, that his banner over them was love, that they were fully and perfectly accepted, and now it's gone. Do you know this, that, do you feel this? Perhaps when you first believed, <laughs> when you first believed on the Lord Jesus, you, you knew, yeah, it was. It, uh, it's me, Lord, I agree with you, I'm the sinner, you're the Savior, and by faith you took him up on his offer, his free offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That unmistakable sense that that 10,000 pound load and burden that was on your shoulder had suddenly been lifted. You had experienced what the, 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 the songwriter describes, burdens are lifted at Calvary. I think of the testimony of one young man who was, I guess, traditionally Muslim, but ended up just living a worldly life in the United States. And uh, through the course of time, he came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he had this weird feeling. He says he felt lighter, <laughs> And so he phones up one of the, the, the leaders at the local church, that, uh, individuals that had been investing in him, pointing him to the Lord Jesus. And he phoned him up and says, I, I feel lighter. What, what is this? Can you help me out? And the elder responds, Son, that's the weight of 27 years of sin being lifted off of your shoulders removed as far as the east is from the west do you remember that do you remember that moment when your dungeon was filled with light and your chains fell off and you knew your heart was free you knew that you knew that you knew that your name was written in heaven that your sins had been blotted out as great as they were david knew and now that sense that enjoyment that delight was gone And so he describes it as a broken bone, and he's begging, he's pleading, he's entreating the Lord, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me, take this away from me, remove the shadow upon my soul. But what's interesting here is that his appeal is not hopeless, (laughs) it is not in vain. Uh, uh, he, he's not uh, pleading and searching and knocking with, with this, this thought that the door will never open. He's appealing to the known character of God. <laughs> See, David, the man after God's ha- own heart, had experienced God, and he's able to say, "Oh God, according to your loving kindness, have mercy. See, David had experienced God's loving kindness. He knew the kind of God he was dealing with. He says, according to your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Mercies, of course, being where God withholds from us what we justly deserve because of our sin. Grace or loving kindness is when God shows favor towards us, bestows blessings and benefits and gifts on on us when it's the last thing we deserve. We have nothing we're with to give him in exchange for it. It's just his benevolence, his kindness, his goodness. And so David appeals to God on the basis of what he knows he is. It's not hopeless. It's not in vain. He knows there is a God on the other side of his prayers that is long-suffering, that is gracious, that is willing to forgive transgression, iniquity, and sin. You see, it wasn't... A David wasn't a man that familiarized himself with a doctrinal statement or a list of characteristics or attributes of God and nodded his head and said, yep, that's God, I agree. This was someone that through the crucible at adversity, this was someone who through the experiences of life had experienced, had known God to be gracious and merciful. Where God had shown mercy to him, he felt it, he knew it, he lived it. And so he's able, with confidence, to appeal to God's character here. What is your concept of God? There was a servant in history, A.W. Tozer, who would say, a servant of the Lord, who would say, That which enters your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And you see, there is a devil out there, and we have heard a bit of testimony already this morning. There is an adversary. There is someone who is actively at work in the world, a super being seeking to undermine God's interests in the world. And one of the tactics, the wiles, or devices at his disposal is character assassination. In other words, he will slander God and sow lies in your mind about what God is like. And so he'll chalk him up to be this esoteric, mysterious being that dwells behind a cloud of thunder and light. And there is a sense in which, yes, he does live in unapproachable light. And and no man can see his face and live, but he won't tell you the whole story. And he'll say, Don't stay away from him. He's not, he he will destroy you for your sins. Stay away. Stay away. He is stern. He is is solemn. He wants nothing but to destroy your life. He is a cruel taskmaster, Satan will say. He wants to put heavy burdens on you, religious imprisonment on you, as if God was some sort of cosmic killjoy who who exists simply to rob you of joy and freedom. See, this is the lie of Satan. Satan. That's why the Lord Jesus called him the father of lies, and he's been at it since day one. Has God really said, he would say, in the Garden of Eden, casting doubt upon the word of God, insinuating to Adam and Eve that somehow God was withholding from them? No, my brothers and sisters, this God is described by James as the father of lights, the, uh, in, in Rick's prayer earlier, he described those who would endure suffering for the sake of Christ. I think of one in particular, John the Apostle. Tradition says he was boiled alive and ended up surviving for the sake of the word of the testimony of the Lord Jesus. And do you know what he wrote about the commandments of God? <laughs> oh, they're very ur- onerous. Oh, they're very heavy and hard. He says his commandments are not burdensome. <laughs> I think of one uh, servant of the Lord in history, David Livingston, who went into Africa. He ended up losing his wife to malaria. All sorts of affliction and suffering he endured for the sake of Christ in the African continent, David Livingston. And he would testify and say, I, I never made a sacrifice. <laughs> I never made a sacrifice. You see, the love of Christ compelled these individuals they knew god and to know god can i suggest to you this morning is to love him the god is revealed in scripture the god as revealed by jesus christ but i don't want to get too ahead of myself here one phrase i wanted to highlight here in verse six and david is appealing to god's desire the fact that god desires truth in the inward parts this is so important. This is the difference between religion and a true vital relationship with the living God. See, religion is all about the outward. Go to church. Make sure you pray. Oh, read those. Read your Bible. Do this. Get on that hamster wheel and work and work and strive and strive and try and try. And maybe one day, maybe, maybe, but you can never know for sure, God will let you into heaven. That's the devil's lie. Speaking of the devil's lies, that is religion. That is the empty yoke of unsatisfying human achievement to try and earn God's favor. See, God is interested in truth in the inward parts. (laughs) He wants reality on the inside. I find it amazing that the Lord Jesus, I mean, he describes himself as meek and lowly of heart. Uh, something that convicted me earlier this week was reading how there was children that were, like, wanting to get at the Lord. There was something about him that was so attractive that even children were wanting to get on his lap. And, and the, the Lord Jesus' disciples, they, like, kept him back and actually rebuked the children from coming to him. And the Lord Jesus, it says there in Mark that he was greatly troubled when he heard that the disciples were trying to keep the children away. This is the heart of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet we read that uh, we see that in the Lord Jesus' interaction with humanity, his words were, they marveled at the gracious words with which he spoke. He was full of compassion. He was moved with compassion as we read earlier. And yet when did he... I don't know how to say this reverently, but when did he get upset? When dealing with the religious community. Matthew 23 is this scathing indictment against the Pharisees, the scribes, the rulers, the the members of the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel that should have known better, that knew the scriptures and yet did not know God. And the Lord Jesus would describe them as empty, uh, as, uh, as uh, whitewashed sepulchers. You can imagine a tomb. And what do you keep in a tomb? Dead men's bones is what you keep in a tomb. Decomposed flesh is what's in a tomb. And yet on the outside, ornate and beautiful and, and whitewashed. The Lord Jesus used that illustration as an analogy of the nation of Israel excuse me, the Pharisees, the scribes, those that were in spiritual leadership. And really, it's no difference today, isn't it? Isn't it amazing, a lot of the scandal, the immorality, the abject, inappropriate, horrific treatment of individuals in the world, so much of it is a result of the religious community, among those that are supposed to be in some sort of spiritual leadership or oversight, the amount of abuse, the scandal, and, and and for this reason, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations as, as a result. If it's not, oh, all the church wants is your money, it's oh, church, filled with scandal and abuse, is what that is. Stay away from those pedophiles, stay away from those abusers, hypocrites. This is how the this is when the Lord Jesus would get upset. He would call out the Pharisees on their double standard. The fact that they would put burdens on people heavy to be born but would not touch them with their own fingers. They were dirty on the inside. They were filled with extortion and excess. And I want to say, make so clear this morning, that true religion, a true relationship with the living God does not just address the outside. What we do and what we wear and what we, where we go. It addresses the inside. If you think this morning, if you're of the opinion that following Christ, being a believer in Jesus, having a relationship of God is defined as giving up all the sinful things you love so you can pursue all the religious things you hate, then you've completely missed it. That is not what's being testified of this morning when we have uh, Chad and Maureen identifying with the Lord Jesus, not just that they've trusted in him, but now they're both new creations in Christ. The old Maureen, the old Chad is gone and done away with. They are now new creatures in Christ, new creations, all things have been made new. And just as much as the miracle of creation that we see described in the book of Genesis where God spoke, he said, let there be light and there was light and all the universe followed the commandment of God. In the same way, God shines into the heart of the one that trusts in him, shines the light of the glorious gospel, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he says, let there be light and they're born from above. They're raised spiritually from the dead. Their spiritual eyes are open. And suddenly the same Jesus that used to be an idea, just a figment of religious imagination, just a picture drawn in Sunday school, is suddenly the living, breathing 3D God incarnate who came into the world, not just to save sinners, but to save me. He is now my own personal Savior. I've entrusted myself to him. And now, as Peter says, he is precious he is not an addition to your life not the cherry you sprinkle on top of your life not just one of many hobbies or many interests he suddenly christ becomes your life he moves in and here under new management now and if this is not the experience you have had can i suggest to you you have been sold a bag of goods can i suggest to you you just got the wrong thing you've missed it Paul would describe, Paul had a lot to give up. He used to be Saul of Tarsus, you might remember. And he had a lot of notches on his, his belt. a uh, Pharisee, of, or excuse me, Hebrew of Hebrews, schooled at the feet of Gamaliel. Probably had great portions of the Old Testament memorized, if not the entire Torah. And yet he would go on to say, yeah, yeah, I might have excelled more than all my contemporaries, but now pff, I count it all as dung in exchange for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. (laughs) And so this isn't someone driving away, kind of looking longingly in his rearview mirror at what he used to be. This is someone that says, forgetting all things that are behind and reaching forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God desires truth in the inward parts. And can I go a step further? Only God can produce that reality in the inward parts. And we'll talk more on that in a moment. What I do want to highlight here is the consequences of sin. See, not all of us were um, saved or came to the Lord at some nice, uh, um, I don't know what to say, sanitary age. (laughs) uh, I, I know some of us know Brother Ron Hampton in Winnipeg, and he would share his testimony of coming to the Lord as... I was saved from a life of addiction and drunkenness and immorality and he would go down the long laundry list and he would say, and then he would say, I was saved at the age of six. And so what he meant was he ended up avoiding all of that because he was saved earlier on. But many of us, unfortunately, we can't say that. We've had a lot of experience, a lot of iniquity under our belt. We became wise concerning evil. We became well-learned in the school of this world, in the school of serving Satan. And yet Paul would... And there are real consequences, aren't there? David here, I mean, he's coming clean with the Lord, and and as we'll see later on, the Lord restores him, and it's amazing, but there's still scars, isn't there? I think in particular of... uh, the demoniac that's described in the book of Mark. Um, It was an individual who was tormented. He made his dwelling place in the tombs. He went to and fro night and day, cutting himself with stones. Why, you say, mental illness? Well, I think it was a little bit more than that. He was possessed by a multitude of demons. He was literally the abode or the dwelling place of, of spiritual host of wickedness. And all this, this the, the, the cutting of himself, the tormenting, crying out night and day. In a moment, the Lord Jesus heals him. In a moment, the Lord Jesus banishes all the spiritual hosts of wickedness from him. And it says he was seated and clothed and in his right mind, the difference that the Lord Jesus makes. But even with that being said, do you think the scars disappeared from having cut himself with stones? Do you think there was, can I suggest to you, there would have been indelible marks on his body for the rest of his life that would have served as a reminder of who he was? See, all of us, we have some baggage, don't we? And some of that baggage doesn't leave so easily, does it? I think of even the illustration of Lazarus when he's called out from the tomb Lazarus was indeed dead, and dead for a number of days. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He comes out of that tomb. Jesus raises him from the dead. But before he could go, what needed to happen? They needed to peel back the layers of, it says, loose him and let him go. They had to take off the grave clothes, didn't they? And some of us, we, we have these grave clothes. These, this is a reality. David would, every time he looked at Bathsheba for the rest of his life, Bathsheba would end up being his wife, one of his wives, And there would be likely a reminder, David still had his memory, David still had his mental faculties, and from time to time, I'm sure the memory would come to mind, yeah, that was Uriah's wife, that was Uriah's wife, and I'm sure every once in a while, he would come in and he'd see Bathsheba there with a tear going down her cheek, yeah, she lost the child, she lost the child, that was my fault, that was me. He would see the, uh, it actually says that when Uriah died, David had commanded that Uriah be put in the heat of the battle and that the rest of the army withdraw so that Uriah would die in the thick of the battle. It actually says that some other servants of David also died. I wonder, any time David saw those widows, yeah, that was me, that was me. I think to the New Testament, I think of Paul Formerly Saul of Tarsus, blasphemer, persecutor, doubtless the blood of many Christians on his hands. He consented that many would be consigned to prison. He likely had heard the screams of people being hauled away, mothers being separated from their children, husbands being separated from their wives. You can use your sanctified imagination. Paul still had a memory in his later years before the Lord took him home. Doubtless the enemy would come and play those in his mind. Remember this? Remember that sh- the, the screams of those people you took away from their families for their faith in Christ? And Paul would say, Paul would say in his last epistle, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, present tense. Yeah, Paul, like David, had a sense of his sin, a sense of his guilt, and yet he knew the cleansing that was available through God, through the Lord Jesus. David would say here, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And I find that amazing. This is really important. David sinned again against Bathsheba, didn't he? Took took her husband away. David sinned against Uriah. Adam murdered by the sword of the Assyrians. David sinned against this child that it would end up dying as a consequence of sin. You could go on and on the people that David had sinned against and yet David summarizes it all by pointing one direction up to the Lord and saying against you and you alone have I sinned. You see, all sin is against God ultimately. And folks, this isn't, uh, this isn't the mayor of some small city. This isn't the governor of some state. This isn't the prime minister or the president of some nation. This is the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. He set his glory above the clouds. He is holy, holy, holy. He cannot uh, in any way excuse the wicked or acquit the wicked as we read in various parts of the Old Testament. This is who we've sinned against. This is whose law we've broken. This is whose heart we've grieved with our sin. It's one thing to say, I've broken, I've infracted upon some law. I've I've violated some precept. It's another thing to say, I've sinned against God. Oh, that we would see the direction of our sin, the object of our sin. Against you and you alone, he, he says. And if those of us, for those of us that are familiar with the rest of the account, you'll know that Nathan the prophet, after exposing David's sin to him, David right away says, I've sinned. He knew it. Now, there was, it, 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 it wasn't right away, you see. The sin happened and I believe there was months before Nathan showed up and confronted him about his sin. So you can imagine this repository storing up, heaping up of of guilt as he refuses to come clean about what he had done. Nathan the prophet confronts him. David makes confession, I have sinned against God. Nathan tells him, you've, you've not just despised the commandment of the Lord, you've despised the Lord himself. But then he goes on to say, your sin has been put away. You shall not die. What? And this is probably the most important thing I have to share this, uh, this morning, folks. I hope you'll listen in. We have to understand from the scriptures the nat- nature of God. Just yesterday, mor- uh, last night, I was reading Proverbs chapter 17. And there in one of the verses there, I'm not going to turn there, but it describes the abomination of acquitting or releasing the guilty or the wicked and condemning the just. Let me say that again. Someone who is guilty in the eyes of the law, righteously speaking, ought to bear the weight or the punishment for their sin. You do the crime, you deserve to do the time. It's just that simple. That is justice. That is righteousness. That is what ought to happen and we're glad we have some semblance of a justice system. I'm not going to stand up here and testify that our justice system in this world is perfect because it's certainly not. I'm not going to say that it's impartial, impartial because it's certainly not. Justice is not always served this side of eternity. But in the eyes of God, there is a payday someday. Nobody gets away with anything as far as God is concerned. Nobody slips through the cracks. There's many atrocities, crimes that have been committed through history, in secret, even publicly, that never made it to the headlines, that CNN or CBC never reported. And yet God knows, and God's keeping immaculate records, and he will ensure that what a man reaps, he shall sow. God is not mocked, and there is a payday someday. And so we come to David, and every aspect of the law is standing as a testimony against David and saying, you deserve to die for what you've done. You've got blood on your hands. He talks later here of asking the Lord to deliver him from blood guiltiness or blood guilt. And so we say, how how can Nathan tell David, your sin has been put away? That's not righteous. That's not fair. Go to to Bathsheba. Yeah, sorry, Bathsheba. David's sin has been put away. Yeah, sorry, uh, uh, all these widows of, of the fellow servants of David that died. Well, uh, Uriah was killed. Sorry. Um, yeah, I guess uh, God was feeling extra gracious today. And you think, how, how? This is the big problem. This is the big question, the big paradox of the scriptures. How can God be good, righteous, and just, and pardon, and forgive, and acquit the guilty Right? I mean, we heard the testimony this morning, didn't we? Of the forgiveness of sins, of having a pardon from God. And you think, but, but what about the sin? Like, the sin it was done, and, and it was against you. And, and how, how do we reconcile these t- aspects of God's cr- uh, nature that seem to be in contradiction to each other? Yeah, we know He's merciful and full of loving kindness, but we also know that it's an abomination to acquit the wicked. I hope we see this morning that we're numbered among these wicked that deserve the condemnation and the judgment of a holy God. How can we go free? How can our sin be put away? Can I suggest to you the reason? (laughs) Imagine, use your sanctified imagination. We talked about the lies and the slander of Satan. And I can imagine, we read a little bit about this in the first chapter of the book of Job, of, of Satan appearing before God and accusing God on account of Job's servants. In some case, accusing God's servants on account of God. And, and, and we, we, he's described as the accuser of the brethren. And I can just imagine Satan before God looking down the corridors of history and saying, how can you call Abraham, for example, your, your friend? <laughs> How can you call Moses your friend? I mean, Abraham, you know that whole thing that happened with Hagar. And even today, the whole Middle East is a testimony of the fact that Abraham did waver in unbelief. Abraham didn't believe God perfectly concerning his promise. Moses? You mean that murderer that hide the carcass of the Egyptian under the sand? Thought he could get away with it? David, really the man after your own heart? Really the murderer, the adulterer, the fornicator? And the list goes on. Really? Uh, Noah, this one that found grace in your eyes? Look at him. After all you did for him in delivering him from the world of the ungodly, he's going to get drunk and make a shame of himself? That ended up being a stumbling block for one of his sons? And the list goes on and on. The accusation of Satan and you can imagine, it would seem that the heavens are silent. The heavens are silent. This, this stuff happens here with Bathsheba. The heavens are silent. God restores David, and Satan says, what, what, Hello, I thought you were righteous. I thought you were just. I thought that you it's an abomination to you to acquit the wicked. And can I suggest to you, the accusations would have continued, and continued, and continued until there was one who came who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh David's greater son a man a God man who never had to say Create in me a clean heart because he was holy harmless undefiled and separate from sinners and never did a thing wrong Never had to ask for forgiveness. Nothing like you and nothing like me. Moral excellence, perfect in every way, everywhere you turn him. The man Christ Jesus. God's son, God uh, incarnate or revealed in the flesh. And he got up, was nailed to a cross And I know we have depictions of the cross. Some of us perhaps have crosses tattooed on our body. Um, And this is a very common thing, perhaps on a necklace. I've asked a number of people over the years who have these different sort of emblems, well, what does the cross mean to you? And most folks can't give me a straight answer. Can I suggest to you the cross is the answer. The cross is how God can reconcile these seemingly contradictory aspects of his character. How he can be just and yet the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Because you see, when Christ was dying on the cross as historically we understand he was crucified, which was a form of Roman capital punishment, it wasn't just a bunch of evil guys nailing a man to a cross as if he was a criminal. He, this was intentional. This was by design. He was delivered up as the writer of the book of Acts says by the, the, the predetermined counsel of God that the Lord Jesus, though crucified, hanging in weakness, would actually be hanging there as the captain of our salvation, orchestrating the redemptive affairs of the universe. You say, how? How could that be? Because when he's hanging there, he is bearing, carrying in his body your sin on the cross. Now understand this, please. This set me free. Please understand this. If Jesus Christ, God revealed in the flesh, perfect in every way, is carrying your sin, who isn't carrying it now? Jesus, you're not sharing the load with Jesus. My own arm brought me salvation as we read prophetically in the scriptures of Isaiah. In his own body he carried our sins on the tree. And that the scripture that uh, Nathan made reference to earlier this, uh, this morning from Isaiah 53, it says he was pierced for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement or the punishment for our peace was upon him and so he is being offered instead of us do you understand this God's holy wrath and indignation against our sin, instead of being poured out on your head, the sky ought to be falling on our heads because of our sin. It's instead falling upon the son of the living God. We read the writer of the Hebrews says he was offered without spot to God. He was Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us, meaning God's judgment passed over us and fell on him. It is by his stripes we are healed. And so now God can say to Satan, I crush you under my feet. I spoil you and principalities and powers. I, by death, my son's death, am defeating you who had the power of death. Because now my son has given a ransom for their sins including David's sins, including Noah's sins, Abraham's sins, Moses' sins, all sins at all times. We, many times it was mentioned even this morning, past sins and future sins. All sin was laid upon the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus bore it in our place. And now we, if we would take God up on his offer, we can be free. This is how Nathan can say to David, your sin has been put away. Because it's God looking down from heaven and is passing over the sins previously committed and then in a future day holding up his son and saying, this is how I can be the just and the justifier of him that believes in my son. And so I guess the question I would ask this morning, will you not believe in him? <laughs> will you not trust in him? You say, well, come on, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. What does believe in Christ mean to you? Nodding your head at a doctrinal statement? Saying yes cheaply and never thinking of him again? Or is it intelligently considering what, he's, what you've done to deserve the wrath of God? Intelligently considering what you, God has done for you that you do not endure that wrath of God out of his great love for you and desire for you And then saying, not just yes, but entrusting your life to this person who now stands with the indelible marks in his palm saying, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I have given myself a ransom for your sin. It's all been put away. Clear skies, just come. Come to me, the Lord Jesus would say. If anyone is thirsty, come and drink. Drink of this water of life. John would describe this water of life springing out of our hearts into everlasting life. And the last point here I'll make as we close. David asked for a clean heart. <laughs> he asked for a, 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 the renewal of a right spirit within me. Begging the Lord that he would not take his Holy Spirit away. Can I suggest to you God's dealings with humanity are different today than perhaps they were in the time of David? That now, when God gives His Holy Spirit, in a sense, gives Himself to come and live in our hearts when we trust in Him, that He'll never withdraw, that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He'll never leave us out on the cold in the cold. I, I was thinking about this last night. This idea of alone. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, those that take God up on his free offer of salvation, are never alone. The Apostle Paul, coming to the end of his life, he laments, all have forsaken me. In a place that he had labored for three years, saw the planting of an assembly, a testimony for the Lord Jesus, he now says, most of them have turned away and have forsaken me. And yet he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. (laughs) Jesus promised, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Never alone. Never alone. He manifests his presence through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He gives us a clean slate. Can you believe that? (laughs) A clean slate. A new beginning. Like, come on. Like, I know what I did. I I couldn't bear the thought that anything that I did would suddenly be played back or or projected back in a future day and held against me. God says it's gone. As far as the east is from the west so far have your sins been put away. (laughs) Somebody has said that he casts them into the ocean of his forgetfulness and puts up a sign, no fishing. This is our God. This is the forgiveness that he offers in Jesus Christ. Not just a cancellation of what you've done, but a new start, a new beginning. Do you want him? Do you want him? At the end of the day, there's people going out with clipboards and looking to see, okay, are you wearing the right thing? Are you going to the right church? And they've got this long list, and it's like, my list is a lot smaller. Do you want him? Do you want him? Be honest. Just be honest. And those who come to him, he will by no means cast out. There is not a single person in the last 2,000 years of redemptive history that has been refused or sent away when they came to the Lord Jesus on the basis of the sacrifices which he's pleased pleased with, a broken and a contrite heart, a broken spirit. These, O God, you will not despise. And so, Lord, as we close... We glorify you, we bless you, we exalt you. Only you could pull this off, only you could make this up. Uh, you are perfect in any, every way. And Lord, I would just ask, I would beg in the name of your son that uh, everyone present would just get honest with you. Um, Lord, you, you, you didn't come to destroy our lives, you came to save us. And there's not a single person that's come to you, Lord, I can testify, who, whose life you've ruined but rather you've restored, you've redeemed, you've made it better. You've made fruitful what was previously barren. You've taken ashes and replaced it with beauty. You've taken away our sadness and replaced it with gladness. And so, my God, I pray that there would be more, more, Lord, as we've heard the report of two others. Pray for more that would join your family, (laughs) more that would come into the kingdom, more jewels in your crown, more that would be added to the bride of Jesus Christ in that coming day. Just ask these things in His name, thanking you for your love, which is perfect. In Jesus' name, Amen.